Many years ago, Riley Knight completed a degree in history. This proved to be a bad move, as it was absolutely useless for him. Until now, here's some half-assed history. What's going on, mate? Great to have you along for some more half-assed history. This week on the agenda, we're going to be having a chat about Zoe and Theodora Porphyrogenita. These were these were two women who ruled uh, both jointly and independently, depending on the exact year, the Byzantine Empire. And you know you're getting your money's worth when it comes to the Byzantines, don't you? Of course you do, because, I mean, never mind the staples of half-assed history, never mind blood and guts and horrible murder, the Byzantines were all about blinding and, and castrating and, and assassination, mate. So we are going above and beyond today. Zoe and Theodora, they were the daughters of the Byzantine Emperor Constantine VIII. And when he died without any sons, he instead thrust his daughters into politics. And uh, Zoe ended up ruling as his heir for a time, while Theodora did what every good Byzantine should do in this situation and started plotting behind her back. Now, Zoe worked very hard to stay in power. And I'll tell you this. It wasn't just her sister who wanted to supplant her. She had to navigate absurdly treacherous waters, the, the, the just ridiculous, ruthless politics of the, Byzantine, uh, of the Byzantine Empire in order to hold on to her crown. And there was everything from convenient political marriages to widespread popular revolts that aided her in remaining the empress for as long as she did. But as for Theodora, she had to plot alongside other political allies in the background to seize power, and she had her own setbacks to deal with, although she got there in the end, kind of, as we'll discuss. Anyway, Byzantine politics were just just obscene at more or less every point. This period is no exception. So much stuff in this episode. Murders, plots, betrayals, marriages, affairs, uh, and, of course, the blinding that you know the Byzantines love so very much. They just love to blind people. I don't know what was going on there. Anyway... Let's get to it here. Let's get underway with the story of Zoe and Theodora and learn a little bit more about the wild world of the Byzantines as well as we do it. Here we go. So, going all the way back. We're going all the way back here to 978 CE to the city of Constantinople, of course, the capital of the Byzantine Empire. Today, we call this city, uh, We know it's, it's the capital of Turkey. It's known as Istanbul. Uh, obviously, that's nobody, nobody's business but the Turks there. But back in the 10th century, and indeed, you know, four or 500 years on either side, Constantinople was the capital of the Byzantine Empire, and it was uh, one of the biggest and most important cities in the world. Now, interestingly, here's an interesting thing about the Byzantine Empire, is that it wasn't called that back then. The Byzantines didn't call themselves Byzantines, and they didn't call their realm the Byzantine Empire. They called themselves Romans, and they called the, the realm that they lived in the Roman Empire. We didn't start using the term Byzantine until the 16th century, 100 years after the Byzantine Empire actually fell. And the term Byzantine comes from the, the name for Constantinople before it was called Constantinople. It used to be called Byzantium, but then obviously that got the works just like Constantinople would eventually in, uh, in 1930. And the reason that we call it the, the Byzantine Empire rather than what they call it, the Roman Empire, I mean, it's rather obvious because today we need a way to distinguish it from the ancient Roman Empire, the one that was centred in, you know, Rome. Um, but uh, as the Byzantine Empire was the direct result of the Roman Empire, you know, splitting in two, it makes sense that they would call themselves Roman. However, they were not really culturally Latin in any way at all. The Byzantines were Greek rather than Latin. Uh, so despite calling themselves Roman and, you know, the, all the associations that we have today with that in terms of the, the Roman, uh, Roman Empire, uh, they were Greek. 
They were Christian. Christianity had become the state religion in the 4th century in the Byzantine Empire. And honestly, the the, the, the history of, of, of this civilization is absolutely fascinating, but it's such a huge topic, it'd be difficult to do it justice. I mean, over a thousand years of history of an empire that at one point spanned the, the breadth of the Mediterranean in the 6th century under Justinian. So, so much to get across with the Byzantine Empire, broadly speaking. So we're going to narrow the aperture, and today we're going to focus on one particular point in its history in the early 11th century, when these two women, Zoe and Theodora, rose to prominence. It was in 978, as I said, that Zoe was born. Two years later, in 980, Theodora came along, and they were born to the Byzantine co-emperor, Constantine VIII, and his wife, Helena. Uh, They did have an older sister, Eudokia, but she went off and became a nun and doesn't really come into the story in any meaningful way here. Uh, both these sisters enjoyed the title Porphyrogenitor, which means born in the purple. This was an appellation given to those who were born to a reigning emperor named after uh, the purple cloth that was often used to, to, to you know, clothe very, very high-ranking nobles, uh, purple being the most expensive dye. Uh, and therefore a very, very difficult uh, thing to come across, uh, you know, very difficult thing to, to make purple clothing and generally regarded as a, a, as a mark of huge opulence and wealth. So born in the purple was a, a, a special title given to those born to a living emperor. And, uh, well, I mean, the living emperor that they were born to, uh, Constantine, Constantine Eighth, he was a bit of a dud as emperors go, unfortunately. He, he wasn't very interested in politics at all. He was essentially just an emperor in name uh, alongside the various co-emperors that actually did all the work throughout his career. He spent about 60, 63 years as, as, as emperor. Didn't spend a lot of it doing any emperoring, really. Uh, the last of his co-emperors was a bloke named Basil II, his brother. And Basil II did a great job, great job as emperor while his brother just enjoyed the lifestyle and the benefits that came with being emperor in name, cutting about, going to fees, going off on hunts, generally having a great time without worrying about politics. And it was Basil II that went out and did all the, all the hard yakka. But then, in 1025, Basil died. And what's more, he died without any children. And this left Constantine VIII as the sole emperor. Now, by the time we get to 1025, Constantine is 65. He has lived a life of extravagance and luxury. And not only is he enormously ill-suited to actually ruling from, you know, in terms of his personality interests, he's also full of gout. He can hardly walk. And immediately, once he is uh, the sole emperor, he starts making bloody terrible decisions. He fills senior positions with all of his mates. He rolled back a bunch of Basil's reforms. He obviously blinded a whole lot of people, just tons of them, just heaps and heaps of people he blinded. And he was cruel and he was nasty and he loved to torture people. So Constantine VIII, not an all-timer in terms of Byzantine emperors. Um, and he didn't even make it three years as the sole emperor. Uh, but those three years were unfortunately absolutely disastrous for the Byzantine emperor. In fact, some historians believe that Constantine VIII's reign marks the beginning of the decline of the Byzantines, obviously they've got you know four hundred odd years left to go, but this marks the uh, the beginning of not the beginning of the end, I guess, but sort of you know the, the the downhill momentum that the empire took after this. Anyway, he's not about for long, as I say. Finally dying in uh, ten twenty eight, but without any sons, he's only got his daughters. And so before he died, in in order to to continue the the dynasty that he was a part of, the uh, the the Macedonian dynasty, as it was known. He made arrangements for his daughters, specifically for Zoe, to succeed him as his heir by sorting out a marriage for her. There had been a couple of attempts in the past to marry his daughters off for political gain over the years. Zoe almost married Otto III of the Holy Roman Empire, but he died in 1002 before they could be wed. She was actually off, you know, on the way to meet him to get married, and he died before they, they could meet, and so she came back with, uh, without having married him. 
Um, and there are a couple of other uh, people who were sort of murdered at, at, at various points, but Basil II, right, their uncle, Constantine's brother, uh, prevented both Zoe and Theodora from marrying any suitable Byzantines as he didn't want their new husbands to have a claim on the empire em- empire through marriage. You can think about this, right? You've got Basil, you've got Constantine ruling as co-emperors. Basil doesn't want Constantine's kids getting married and having this new bloke, right, whoever he is, start and say, well, I'd like a seat at the, big, at the, at the adult's table as well. Thank you very much. So Basil blocked a lot of these marriage uh, proposals to any sort of powerful Byzantines. And as a result, both Zoe and Theodora, they remained unmarried well into their 40s. Um, although Zoe did turn down uh, one quite interesting marriage proposal that she got uh, from the Holy Roman Empire, once again in 1028, when they suggested that she marry the son of the ruling emperor, Conrad II. So you think, okay, well, we've got the daughter of the, the Byzantine Empire. We've got the son of the Holy Roman Empire, right? Match made in heaven, you would have thought, right? Fantastic, union of two crowns. But this son, Henry, was only 10 years old. And Zoe was 50. So, a bit too much of an age gap there. Probably wouldn't have been able to agree on anything, you know, watching anything on TV. He'd be wanting to watch bloody play school and she's wanting to watch, you know, Midsummer Murders or whatever. So, a couple of issues there. More, I guess, you know, maybe wasn't just what they wanted to watch on the old telly, but she did end up married nonetheless, right? Because of her her dad on his deathbed stepping in and saying, listen, you've got to find yourself a husband. Make sure there's no succession crisis. You and he are going to be uh, emperor and empress once I cark it. So Constantine VIII, he made arrangements for her to marry this fella named Romanos Argyros, right? Now, he was a, he was a high-ranking Byzantine noble, the, the exact sort of person that Basil was trying to block uh, his, his niece from, um, from marrying, but he's gone, so nothing's stopping him anymore. And this marriage would shore up her position as the heir uh, of Constantine once he died. However, one problem, one eh, small problem, a problem that can be overcome. He was already married. So Constantine, from his deathbed, right, he goes to Romanos and he says, listen here, mate, you're going to marry my daughter whether you like it or not, but you've got to get rid of the wife you got at the moment. You, 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 I'm, I'm ordering you to divorce her. So this poor woman, right, bloody Romanos divorces her. She goes off and becomes a nun and he marries Zoe instead, who, remember, is, is 50 years old. And at this point, I mean, we'll, we'll get into exactly what that mean, means in just a second. But he, he chucks his old wife over, marries Zoe. And then, according to some sources, the very next day, Constantine dies. Could have been a couple of days later, could have been two or three. But some sources said it was exactly, actually, the very next day after they married. Talk about beating the bloody buzzer. Because the succession crisis has been averted, now that she's married Zoe, she can become the Empress Consort, while Romanos uh, effectively takes power as Emperor Romanos III. Obviously, you know, that is just the nature of so many historical civilizations, completely patriarchal, and, um, uh, you know, a woman being in power by herself was something that a lot of people sought to prevent from happening back then. So now that she's married, Romanos III, uh, as he was known once he became Emperor, uh, he effectively takes power uh, after this marriage. Now, obviously... Anyway, you slice it, very big change for Zoe. Of course, she and her sister Theodora had until this point um, been hidden away, effectively, in the women's quarters, not really able to do that much, not living particularly complete or fulfilling lives. But now, Zoe is large and in charge at her husband's side. One of the reasons that Romanos was chosen as her husband, in fact, was because he's a bit weak-willed. He's easy to influence. And this suited both the Byzantine nobles who wanted to increase their power and Zoe herself, who was able to rule through her husband. She had a fair bit of political ambition, this woman. And as a result, she is kicking goals with both feet because Romanos is, you know, again, pretty easy to bend to, uh, bend to, uh, bend to her will. Now, 
After taking power with Romanos, Zoe has two immediate priorities. After taking the throne, she has two things that she immediately tries to get on top of here. Both of them were designed to help her consolidate and hold on to the power that she had just seized. The first one was to deal with her sister, who could be a real threat to her position if she married someone willing to press a claim on the empire. You know, we often we think of these old medieval realms as having a very strict sort of primogeniture succession where, you know, the eldest takes the takes power and that's that, it's all sorted. Not so, particularly in the Byzantine Empire, where it was very much about the will of the predecessor to nominate an heir, and then other people would either rally around that heir or not, try to install someone else who had a claim to the throne for this, that, or the other reason. So if Theodora were to get married as well, this bloke could say, well, actually, you know what? I think I'd be a better emperor than you, Romanos, so I'm going to try to take over. Zoe realises this is a threat to her position, and so she tries to deal with uh, with Theodora. And this wasn't really something that she had much hesitation in doing because she absolutely hated her sister. The two of them didn't get along at all, and being forced to hang out in the women's quarters together for the last however many decades really didn't help things at all. So, what she does is this, Zoe, she gets a bunch of servants, gets a bunch of people who are loyal to her, and she filled Theodora's household and retinues with these people that are loyal to her, Zoe, and ordered them to spy on Theodora uh, to try to dig up evidence, evidence of a plot or just anything really that could be used to get rid of her sister. And as it turns out, Zoe's fears that her sister was going to come after her were absolutely justified because more than once Theodora was accused of plotting to overthrow Zoe and Romanos by getting married to, you know, various different blokes who were going to press their claims. In 1030, she was found to have been planning a marriage with a fellow named Prisian, who was the son of the last Bulgarian Tsar. Now, Prisian would have been a, a great pick to, to challenge the authority of Romanos as well. He was, a you know, a very powerful warlord effectively he'd worked in the within the byzantine emperor as a, as a as a public servant as a military man and he may have been able to press his claim but once once this plot was discovered poor old Prisian, he was exiled to a monastery forced to take the vows and then just to really drive the point home of course was blinded yep oops uh and then again the very next year in 1031 Theodora tried a second time with a bloke whose name was Constantine Diogenes. He was a Byzantine political ruler, and this was again found out. Now, Constantine uh, Diogenes, he he was also sent off to monastery, but he wasn't blinded, interestingly, and there was a very good reason for him not being blinded. Uh, He threw himself off a wall and killed himself to avoid any more kind of brutal punishment. So that was that problem taken care of. Theodora... Uh, actually escaped any kind of punishment for... I mean, I, I kind of feel sorry for these blokes because Theodora comes and says, oh, you know, come, let's get married, we'll overthrow the empire, and then they find it, you know, he gets blinded or killed or whatever else, and she's just like, oops, on to the next one. But after this second one, right, Zoe had enough. She's like, I'm not playing catch-up with you trying to marry this bloke, that bloke, whatever else. She shipped her sister off to a monastery, made her stay there just to get her out of the way for good, and this did not work, as we will discover shortly enough. But for now... Her sister's taken care of, and so Zoe can uh, can get on top of the other thing uh, that she wants to do here uh, in order to secure her rule. Secure her rule, and the thing that she wants to get on top of is her husband, so she can get pregnant. Uh, one of the things that she really was so keen to do was have an heir, right, to make sure that the dynasty would continue under you know after after she'd gone. But the problem that I mentioned before that is now going to be very very pertinent here. Don't forget, she's fifty as she's become the empress. So this is a bit of a tall order, having a kid at this point, just from a biological standpoint. 
Nonetheless, she tried everything. She tried lotions and potions and magic amulets and charms and presumably also just a whole lot of rooting. But, I mean, she's in her 50s, man. Her husband is also 60. You're really swimming against the tide here, aren't you? So, eventually, her inability to conceive uh, actually meant that Zoe and and Romanos turned against each other. He stopped sharing a bed with her and started to ignore her. And Zoe, in response, just went about sleeping with blokes all over the place, just had a bunch of affairs. Um, And after he found out about this, Romanos actually was a lot more reasonable than many other medieval rulers because he then went and started having a bunch of affairs of his own rather than sort of, you know, going after Zoe. So, you know, I guess nice to see that even at at an advanced age, you can still cut about rooting people like a horny 20-something. Good on both of them, I suppose. But one of these affairs would end up escalating to a point that uh, was a bit of a game changer for old Romanos here. Because Zoe ended up uh, with this bloke, one of her paramours was a a low-born servant whose name was Michael. And he ended up becoming a particular favourite of hers. Now, he was 30 years her junior. He's only in his 20s. But that didn't matter. The two of them, they began to plot to do away with Romanos and instead put Michael on the throne in his place. And wouldn't you know it, shortly after Zoe starts flaunting this affair that she's having with Michael, this bloke she's plotting with, shortly after, you know, she starts going around bragging about how she would make him the emperor, Romanos fell ill. What a coincidence. Surely it wouldn't have anything to do with the fact that Zoe and Michael were trying to poison him. No, no, what a terrible thing to think. Whatever the case, he didn't die of poison. Uh, because in April 1034, Romanos was found dead in the bath. He had been drowned or strangled or... I on, Look, I don't know. Honestly, it's never been proven, but he was almost certainly killed on the orders, orders of Zoe and Michael. That is just how they did things in the, in the Byzantine Empire, mate. That is just how they got stuff done. So, poor Zoe. I mean, let's think about this. Poor Zoe, her husband's dead. I mean, sure, they didn't get along, but oh, what a blow for her to lose her husband. She must have been filled with, with grief for about five minutes because she married Michael the very next day after Romanos was found dead in the bath. Zoe got married the day after and summoned the ecumenical patriarch Alexios I, basically the Orthodox Pope. We're not going to get into that. Yes, I know the schism hasn't happened properly, whatever. The Basically, the, 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 the big cheese of the Orthodox Church. He is summoned to come and crown Michael as the emperor now that, you know, she's married, now that he's married Zoe. But a new problem arose here because Alexios, a man with real moral fortitude, he refuses to do it. He has a determination to do what is right. He refuses to crown. He says, I will not crown Michael, this lowly, this lowborn former servant, a mere bedroom plaything of the murderer Zoe. I will not do it as the, I, I will not, ha- I will not make him the emperor. It would be, a, oh, what's that? Oh. You're going to give me 50 pounds of gold if I do it. Well, in that case, Michael was crowned as Michael IV, right, after this uh, hefty bribe was pl- uh, was paid to the ecumenical, ecumenical uh, patriarch who was bought off, well, not cheaply, but easily. Anyway, uh, he crowned the new emperor, Michael IV, and you will never guess what happened next. Michael immediately turned on Zoe. And I mean... In fairness, with good bloody reason. Currently, she has knocked off 100% of her husband's that she's made emperor, and Michael is also worried that she is going to turn on him as well. So, once he is in power now as the emperor, he has Zoe confined to the women's quarters. He delegated most of his authority and decision-making to his brother, who was already an established civil servant, 
And Michael IV ended up being just a pretty rubbish emperor who wasn't very good at his job. Uh, I mean, in fairness to him, he was in bad nick for much of his reign. He suffered from epilepsy, dropsy, and, and eventually gangrene. So he wasn't in the best of condition to, to, to rule an empire. But his, uh, his rule is not remembered fondly. And it left Zoe, you know, plotting away from confinement, trying to, trying to find a way to regain her power and influence as, as empress. But... This ultimately proved to be entirely unnecessary because Michael died in 1041 and his title passed to his nephew, who also confusingly was named Michael, uh, who he had made Zoe adopt as her son. So his nephew became the adoptive son of Zoe and therefore the heir once Michael IV died. But this didn't work out too well for young Michael here. He was crowned as Michael V after the death of his uncle. But he did not enjoy a particularly long or successful time as emperor. And if you are at this point struggling to keep track of all the, you know, Byzantine emperors who are coming and going and being murdered and blinded and whatever else, welcome to the history of the Byzantine Empire, because it isn't very much different at any other point in the history of this civilization. Anyway, once he was crowned, Michael the uh, Michael V, he exiled Zoe to an island monastery. He was worried that she might make an attempt to seize power because, of course, now she's got this Johnny-come-lately who she doesn't know anyone, doesn't know at all, right, who's basically usurped her, uh, her position. So she ships, uh, he, gets, he, he gets her shipped off to this, uh, this island monastery and this proved to be a bad move. She was accused of uh, attempted regicide, she was forced to become a nun and she was tonsured, which was uh, quite a disgrace. And to put it mildly, People did not like this. Don't forget, Zoe was born in the purple. She was the daughter of a Byzantine emperor. She was the heir to a proud dynasty that spanned nearly 200 years of rule. And her exile prompted popular revolts in Constantinople. People actually rose up against Michael V, an elevated commoner who had become far too big for his boots, and they demanded the return of Zoe. And when... Michael V, who realised that he might be in a a spot of trouble here, when he caved to their demands and brought her back from exile, this wasn't enough. Because the, the, I mean, he'd enraged the mob to the point that that they wanted him gone for good, effectively. He'd actually gone too far in exiling their, uh, their empress. And it was not a popular bloke at all. Now, with Zoe having been brought back from exile, having been placed in a position of power once again as, as, as empress, other Byzantine nobles, they actually didn't much mind the idea of Zoe being back in power. They thought that she would be, you know, easier to manipulate and control without a husband. However, they wanted someone there to, I guess, offset her uh, ambition and her unpredictability. And so you'll never guess who they turned to. Theodora. They asked Theodora to come back, to return from her life of religious contemplation to where she'd been sent this monastery, to come back and act as the co-empress alongside her sister. But here's the best bit. Theodora refused. The Byzantine nobles come and say, listen, we're going to get rid of Michael. We want you back on the throne alongside your sister. And she just goes, no, I'm not interested, mate. I I want no more part of this. I've put politics behind me and I'm not going back to it. Or so she thought, because despite her refusals, she was forcibly carried out of the monastery. And there's been at home for years. They picked her up, they carried her out of it, and they dragged her back to Constantinople against her will, where she was proclaimed co-empress alongside Zoe. Michael V, he read the writing on the wall. He realised that he's in serious danger of his life. And so he fled, to Con- he fled from Constantinople to 
a monastery, of course. Those bloody monasteries, they've got that many people coming and going. Bloody shame they didn't have a revolving door on them in those days. And with Michael V out of the way, the two sisters began their reign as co-empresses. Although Zoe was not happy about Theodora being back in the picture, she tried very hard to get her sister out of the way, but was prevented from doing this by the Byzantine nobles. They insisted that the sisters were all together, although Zoe was given the courtesy of being the senior empress, meaning, this is not a joke, that her throne was placed slightly in front of Theodora's. That actually happened. It sounds like some petty childish sibling rivalry nonsense, and I guess it is, but it is actual real-life history. Imagine that. She was the senior empress, so her throne was put a little bit in front of her sisters in the throne room. Anyway, one of the first things that these two did after their uh, their joint rule began was deal with Michael the uh, the fifth. Now, Zoe uh, had a mind to be lenient with the bloke. He's already exiled. He's already in a monastery. Leave, leave well enough alone. But Theodora, who it has to be said, was much, you know, for all of her sister's ambition, Theodora was the clever and conniving one with very, you know, with a lot of political sense. And she realized that, nope, Michael V had to be dealt with. And can you guess the punishment she chose? Did you guess blinding? Because if so, you are correct. And you're not going to believe this. In one of the weirdest historical cameos that I've ever come across, right? In all the research and all the reading I've ever done for this podcast or outside of it anywhere, this is one of the weirdest sort of crossover episodes that you're ever going to come across, I think, in all of human civilization. Because the man who is said to have actually exacted the punishment of blinding on Michael, the bloke who was supposed to have blinded Michael V, was... Of all people, Harold Hadrada, the bloke who would go on to fight and lose the Battle of Stamford Bridge in 1066 in England against Harold Godwinson. Harold Godwinson then went on to lose the Battle of Hastings against William the Conqueror, episode 76, get across it. But Harold Hadrada apparently was the guy who <laughs> who blinded Michael V. Hadrada, at this point in his career, was a member of the Varangian Guard, the personal bodyguards of the Byzantine Emperor. The Varangian Guard was usually, it was very normal for it to be made up of foreigners, often Norsemen. They lacked the political allegiances to various Byzantine factions, so the Varangian Guard was usually made up of non-Byzantines. Um, and at this time in history, Harold Hadrada was part of the Varangian Guard. He's cutting about the Byzantine Emperor. Um, I have to say, it has never been conclusively proven that he actually was the one who blinded Michael V. It might be more myth than fact. I guess I do have to say that. But it is certainly possible because he was in that part of the world at that point in history. And he may, as one of the personal bodyguard of the of the empresses there, he may have been the one who carried out the sentence. It is just wild. <laughs> Harold Andrada off the top, top rope out of nowhere. Anyway, Michael V, he's blinded. He's overthrown. That's the end of him. And the two sisters are now placed in charge of the empire in their own right, well and truly. Not even as empress consorts now, but as, you know, dual empress regnants. Now, as I mentioned, these two didn't like each other all that much. That hadn't changed. Theodora had been dragged away from her quiet monastery unwillingly to rule, and now they are forced to govern an entire empire together, and they did not do it particularly harmoniously. Were the bonds of sisterhood enough to overcome years of bitter acrimony? Were these two women able to put aside their differences and rule together for the good of the realm? 
absolutely not no not under no circumstances even with zoe being made the senior empress the two sisters they just couldn't get on classic sibling problems they were never taught to share in fairness they did do what they could to repair some of the damage done to the reputation of the Byzantine leadership under the previous emperors. They, well, they worked to curtail the worst excesses of the ruling classes. But they just bloody hated each other. And their relationship only got worse as time went on. And soon enough, they'd split the Byzantine court into factions. Various nobles and courtiers rallied around their chosen sister, whether it was, whether it was the ambitious Zoe or the politically savvy Theodora. It was... It was it was a disaster, and there was very little unity in the Byzantine court at this point, as there was very little unity at many other points in the history of the, of the empire as well. And Zoe, obviously being highly ambitious at this point, she starts to try to... She's plotting a way to get ahead. She wants a way to seize as much power for herself as she can, and she decides the best way, the best course of action to cement her position was to get married again. And so began her search for another husband. Because, of course, if she's got a bloke, I mean, this, we're talking about years of established patriarchy. If she's got a bloke at her side ruling alongside her, people are going to look at her as being a much more legitimate empress. And that's just the way that it goes. Uh, because, I mean, most of the power that, you know, the empress has held would then be concentrated in the, in the, the hands of this bloke. Not a particularly great situation, but one that has ruled civilization, human civilization, for thousands of years. So it's not surprising to you know learn that a thousand years ago that was how things worked. Even today, there is a huge bent towards men holding power. So not going to come as a surprise, as unfortunate as it was. Anyway, Zoe, she goes about. She's trying to find a bloke to uh, to marry. Interestingly, I was I, I was quite fascinated to learn that under the rules of the Orthodox Church, she was only allowed to get married one more time. I don't know what it was about three marriages, but. That is, I mean, this one had to count, basically. She couldn't get married again after this one, this one. So she begins to line up potential candidates. The first one was a bloke whose name was Constantine Dallasenos. Uh, but she didn't like him. She was, he was brought in front of her uh, and was too mouthy. It was clear that he was going to interfere with Zoe as, as she tried to rule. So she binned him. She wanted someone who was going to be a little bit easy to control. Someone who, that, you know, again, with all the power that would basically be invested in him, she wanted to be the one pulling the strings. And this bloke, no, nah, too, too independent, too hot-headed. So she goes, no, nah, binned him. In, in a figurative sense, I should say. I mean, it wouldn't be surprising for you if, you know, she actually like, killed him or whatever, but that didn't happen. Uh, and, and it's important to point out that he got binned in a figurative sense because the next one got binned in a rather more literal way. The next one uh, was Constantine uh, Atroclanes, another Constantine. And uh, this bloke was probably one of the fellas that she had been mucking about with while she was having all those affairs way back when she was married to Romanos. So they were probably former lovers. Uh, and this Constantine seemed to fit the bill. Uh, seemed to be a, a you know a, a, a good a good fit for what she was looking for. Someone that she'd probably be able to rule over pretty easily. Uh, one small obstacle, uh, once again, that in that he was already married. But uh, again, we've seen not a problem. Get up, force him to get a divorce, organise that divorce, no worries at all. Once that's all sorted, come and marry me, you'll be the emperor alongside me, she says. Except his soon-to-be ex-wife didn't like this plan all that much, it seems, and he was found dead just days before he was due to marry Zoe, probably poisoned by the woman that he was going to leave for her. So, as I say, binned in a rather more literal sense. There you go. Now, the third bloke, the third bloke was named, you'll never guess, he was named Constantine, yes, yes, Constantine Monomachus, right? Now, this uh, he was another fella that Zoe had been rooting way back when. And third time's the charm when it came to looking for a third husband. Zoe married Constantine Monomachus in June 1042, making him Constantine the Ninth. And, uh, you know, 
doing what she wanted to do in, in, in terms of concentrating power on her and her husband. But even if third time the char- was the charm when looking for a husband, third time was not the charm when it came to having a husband here because he surprised everyone after the, after the marriage, after, the, you know, after he was proclaimed emperor. He surprised everyone by bringing his long-term mistress to the palace with him. Uh, his mistress, Maria Sclerena, right, was brought along for the ride. And not only did he move her into the palace and, you know, share a bed with her and whatever else, he also insisted that she have a role in public life with a position and a title and everything. Now, I don't think Zoe knew what she was signing up for when she married this bloke. I don't think that she thought that there was going to be another woman involved. But she rolled with the punches. She was a pragmatist and she just kind of let Constantine do what he wanted with Maria. Um, And this meant that the official Byzantine imperial court had four people on thrones at the front of it, if you'll believe it. There were up the front, there was Zoe and Constantine out in front, then Theodora a little behind them, as we've already talked about, and then behind the three of them, Maria was also up there on a throne as well. An absolute circus, you'd think, but Zoe, she didn't really seem to care. She didn't actually seem to mind that the bloke that she'd married had brought this other uh, other woman along and, you know, this long-term mistress had set up shop in the palace and was and was sleeping with her new husband. Um, I mean, you know, she's she's 62 years old. She doesn't seem to mind if her husband, 20 years her junior, was having it away with a mistress. But I'll tell you who did mind. The general public, once again. The Byzantine public did not like this situation at all. It provoked... It, they thought it was enormously scandalous. And rumours, seemingly baseless, began to circulate that Constantine was going to assassinate Zoe and Theodora, seize power for himself, and make his mistress, Maria the official empress. People did not like this at all. Once again, there were riots in the streets because of the scandalous behaviour of Constantine IX. And in fact, during an imperial procession through through uh, Constantinople, a mob came very close to actually busting up Constantine then and there on the street until Zoe and Theodora personally came out. They appealed for calm and they said, listen, we're not in danger of being killed. We know what this bloke's doing with his Maria or whatever, but it doesn't matter. We're not going to be assassinated. It's fine. The question you're probably asking here is, like, why did the public love these two so much? These two squabbling sisters, why were they held so dear by the, by the Constantinople, by, by, I guess not just Constantinople, but by the, by the Byzantines more generally? Well, look, in all honesty, despite their rivalry and the acrimony between the two of them, despite the bad blood, despite them not getting on too well at all, the two women were actually pretty good rulers, really. I mean, particularly when you set them against people like their dad and the other blokes who had come along after him. They were pretty good at their job. Theodora in particular seemed to have a real talent for governance, as I say. And, you know, even as Zoe and Constantine edged, edged her out, they took up power after their marriage as best they could. Theodora still exerted her will. She still remained relevant at court for a time. But as the years passed, the historical inertia of patriarchal rule set in once again. And in the years that followed the marriage of Zoe and Constantine, Constantine effectively ended up in charge. The two women were, were kind of sidelined. Zoe was able to influence Byzantine policy through her husband, and Theodora did what she could to remain involved in ruling. But throughout the late 1040s, it was Constantine who was effectively in charge. But then, in 1050, he, didn't, he went from being effectively in charge to indisputably in charge, because Zoe, at the age of 72, finally passed away. After ruling the Byzantine Empire as an empress consort or regnant for the last 22 years, her time on earth finally ended. And with the, Zo- the with the death of Zoe, Theodora, she decided enough was enough 
and she retired from politics. She went back to religious contemplation in a convent. Don't forget, she's 70. She didn't really want to come back to politics after Michael V, and so she goes back to a quiet life, but she wasn't quite finished yet because a couple of years later in 1055, when she was 75 years old, Constantine IX died, and what's worse, he died without an heir. Now, his advisors told him to name a powerful Byzantine duke whose name was Nicephorus Proteon as his heir. But after Constantine IX you know, announced that it was going to be Nicephorus to, uh, to succeed him, Theodora says, nah, no way. No way, sunshine. You're not taking my throne from me that easily. And she comes out before he dies, after he's named this, uh, this, uh, this heir, she comes out and says, I'm the, I want to be the empress again after all. So, you know, suck it, whatever. I'm, I'm back large and in charge. What are you going to do about it? She was re-proclaimed the empress by the imperial guard before Constantine died. I mean, you know, she she was just on hiatus, mate. She was just taking a she's on a sabbatical, taking some time off, and now she's back on the throne. The imperial guard proclaims her the emperor, and who's going to argue with them? After Constantine died, there was no one to challenge her rule, and once again she took up the mantle of governance. Just like before, she worked to curb the excesses of the upper classes, she tightened her control over the Byzantine nobles, she worked to stamp out corruption and abuse. But she did this by like purging just a just a whole lot of people. She purged a bunch of long a bunch of long-standing officials. She exiled so many people that she thought were going to be enemies to or threats to her. I don't know if she blinded them this time around. I don't think she did, but she did put a lot of noses out of joint by doing this. And while she was never overthrown, in fairness, uh, she did become a lot less popular as time went on, and she made a fair few political enemies in, in doing this. But, however, she did manage to do. What her sister could not. She finally centralized a lot of power personally, and she ruled the Byzantine Emperor Empire in her own right as Empress Regnant, sole and unquestioned. However, time makes fools of us all. And Theodora, I mean she's she's in her she's in her mid-70s, she's getting on in years, and in 1056 she fell ill, and a succession crisis once again loomed on the horizon. Her advisors implored her to get married, even just as a token gesture to find some bloke who would be able to sit on the throne after she died, but she refused. She refused to marry anyone. She said, nope, even as she got more and more unwell, she says, I'm not going to marry someone just to put his ass on the throne. I'll die before I do it. So finally, in August 1056, her advisors, wanting to head off this succession crisis, they met to pick an heir because it was clear that Theodora was on her way out. And they chose a bloke whose name was, no, not Constantinople this time, another Michael, in fact, Michael Bringas. He was an old civil servant. He'd worked as a finance minister in the past. And they picked him because, check this out, they picked him because he was less qualified to rule than he was to be ruled and directed by others. Effectively, they picked him because they knew they'd be able to boss him about, they'd be able to influence and control him and, you know, not the other way around. They were quite done with having a headstrong, a headstrong ruler on the throne like Theodora. But still, they needed Theodora's acceptance of this appointment. I said before that, you know, a lot of the a lot of the succession of the Byzantine Empire was about what the predecessor had said or thought or, or indicated that they wanted. Uh, and so the advisors, they visited Theodora on her deathbed and they said, listen, we've got this bloke, Michael, he's fantastic. We want him to be your heir. She was said to be unable to speak at this point, but apparently they said she nodded when Michael's name was mentioned to her, and that counted, that was enough. And believe it or not, that was enough for Michael VI to be crowned as co-emperor just hours before Theodora died of her illness. Michael VI was proclaimed emperor 
a very short time before Theodora died. And that was that for not just the two sisters, Zoe and Theodora, with the death of Theodora, of course, but also also for their dynasty. The Macedonian dynasty that I mentioned before that had ruled the Byzantine emperor almost two centuries, 189 years, almost 200 years it had ruled the Byzantine emperor had finally come to an end because, of course, neither Zoe nor Theodora had children. And so once Michael VI became the, uh, the sole emperor, their line ended. Not that Michael lasted very long. I mean, he was overthrown within a year by Isaac I Comemnus, which began the rule of the Comemnian dynasty, which ruled the Byzantine Empire the next century or so. And of course, it was a century filled with plots and assassinations and blindings and everything else. But in this hostile Byzantine world of plots and assassinations and blindings and everything else, taking power was a very difficult thing to do. And in this cutthroat empire, holding on to it was another thing altogether. So for Zoe and Theodora, for Zoe to stay in charge effectively for over two decades as Empress Regnant, Empress Consort, quite an incredible feat. While her sister obviously ended up managing to rule in her own right, unshackled by marriage or sisterhood or anything else, something that Zoe never managed. So Zoe and, Th- and Theodora, porphyrogenitor, with the deck stacked against them as women, they really did manage to enjoy quite successful political careers in spite of everything. But that's it. That's all she wrote today, sports fans. That is the story of Zoe and Theodora Porphyrogenitor. Great to get across a bit of Byzantine history. And I'm going to look for more because oh, there's so much good stuff in the Byzantine Empire. Uh, there's so much just mm, succulent, juicy content that we can turn into episodes. So I'm going to, I'm going to have a, uh, a look through that. And if you've got any ideas about anything, you know, of course, we love the the blood and the guts and all the rest of it. So uh, do get in touch. The best way to do that, of course, halfhousehistory.net. There's a contact form there. You can find all the old episodes. And if you go to anchor.fm slash halfhousehistory, that's where you can uh, subscribe to the the feed on Spotify, iTunes, when you pick your pipe. I want to mention once again, I talked about it last week. We have launched a new merch store, bit.ly slash H-A-H merch. Thank you to all the people who've gone and made purchases there so far. Thanks for the money. Um, I have got some feedback from people who have received merch, uh, and I really appreciate it. The feedback has been almost universally positive. Uh, there have been a, uh, some small issues. Someone got a magnet where the image on it was slightly off-centered. Um, and apart from that, I'm really, I can't think of much else that has come up in terms of issues. Uh, the stuff comes out super quickly. Thanks to Public for being so on top of it. Uh, if you order something from from the, the shop, you'll get it real quick, particularly if you're in the United States. So if you want to go and get across it there. Um, and so far, the feedback I've got has been almost completely positive uh, about in terms of the, the quality of the stuff that you're getting as well. So uh, head along there and grab it if you uh, if you feel like you want anything. Again, bit.ly slash H-A-H merch. Um, and I'm uh, I'm still accepting ideas for designs uh, for merch and stuff. There was a lot of requests for uh, you know the 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 blood and guts and horrible murder and the only got worse from there. So that stuff's up there available now. But if you've got another idea, uh, let me know and I'll see if I can do it. But uh, yes, once again, thank you to everyone who's gone and uh, and bought some half hour history gear for themselves there. Um, and thank you to everyone who's supporting me on Patreon as well. patreoncom history if you want to join their exalted ranks. Uh, and that's it. We're done. That's it for the episode here. Going to close it out, of course, with... Have I forgotten something? I feel like I've forgotten something. Halfhazardry.net, patreon.com, Halfhazardry merch, get in touch. I think that's it. All right, we're done. Uh, close out the show, of course, with a question posed on Reddit here. This one comes to us from Reddit user Loftrick, and it's about 
well, I mean, not necessarily the Byzantine Empire, but what, what that area would go on to become, of course, which is uh, modern-day Turkey. Loftric asks, I want to quit smoking. And so I visited Turkey in the winter. Why didn't this help? 